it, it really reflects in, in the way we, uh, I mean, how our society operates. So we don't honour mothers. We don't honour the great mother in terms of the planet of Earth. And we just quite blindly just hope everything's going to be okay. Whereas if you look at those sort of maternal principles or matrilineal principles, it's much more about taking responsibility and being inclusive and understanding that there just needs to be a, a balance. It's not something that we can forget about and just you know, think science is going to work it out or or Elon Musk's idea of we'll just go to Mars once we screw up this planet. No, I mean, it, it's just crazy, really. And we have the resources we have, but I think we have enough understanding. And I think the best people to be managing a lot of this are the most invested people. And the most invested people are mothers. You know, they've got more to lose than anyone else, really. And to be trying to collectively move away from this uh, me, me, me narrative that's uh, so predominant out there. You're listening to the Untaming Podcast. Rewild the child. Here is your host, Emily Giles. Hello, I'm Emily and you're listening to the Untaming Podcast. Today it is the full worm moon here in the Southern Hemisphere. In the last episode, our guest Dr. Barry Hewlett and our guest host Mary Francel spoke about the work of Peter Gray with regards to education. It was mentioned that I have interviewed him, so I thought I should clarify that I have not, but I do recommend his books. Mary will be back again in the next episode interviewing Carol Worthman. Carol is the anthropology professor at Emory University. But today I'm chatting with Dr. Oscar Serilak. This was the very first interview I recorded in our new house. I loved chatting with Oscar so much. So make sure you listen to the whole episode because we talk about postpartum in the first half. And in the second half, we talk about the masculinization of motherhood and how patriarchal systems affect the world on a global scale catastrophically. Fifty-two-year-old Dr. Oscar Serilak lives near Byron Bay, Australia, with his partner and their three children. Oscar is a doctor of functional medicine with a special interest in postnatal well-being. His initial studies in functional medicine coincided with starting a family, which led him to consider the science through the particular lens of pregnancy, birth, and the postnatal period, observing his own partner and many mothers through his clinical work. Since 2010, he has dedicated his work towards applying functional medicine to the condition that he has identified as postnatal depletion. Last night, Oscar had six hours and 38 minutes of sleep, and he has not had anything for breakfast yet. Oscar, welcome to the show. Uh, uh, thanks, Emily. Uh, great to be here. And uh, yeah, um, uh, in, in terms of the breakfast thing, you know, I just I just do the in, intermittent fasting, so um, mm-hmm. I'll, I'll probably have some breakfast after we get off this call, so to answer that. Excellent. Nice. Now, it was a good friend who recommended your book to me last year as a topic to cover on this podcast. Your book is called The Postnatal Depletion Cure, so I figured a good place for us to start would be with you telling us what is postnatal depletion? Um, well, to answer that question well, let's talk a little bit 
first about some of the issues that affect mothers, because essentially postnatal depletion is on a spectrum of uh, disorders. Uh, and on that spectrum also is postpartum fatigue, postnatal depletion, uh, depression, anxiety, OCD. And all of those things have one thing in common, which is neuroinflammation. Uh, and in a nutshell, neuroinflammation is where parts of the brain, uh, because of the postpartum, you know, the brain changes that occur during pregnancy and then the recalibration that's trying to occur in the postpartum, um, it doesn't quite recalibrate fully and you're left with parts of the brain that are, are too electrical and parts of the brain that are under electrical. So you can imagine kind of hot and cold spots in the brain. Um, you know, there's no damage going on, no, nothing from that point of view but just it's a more dysfunction and what happens in mothers is unique it doesn't happen in uh, children it doesn't happen in men it doesn't happen in, in women who haven't had children so it's quite a it's almost like a unique landscape and something that I, I really came to understand is that there were so many mothers that had symptoms of neuroinflammation but weren't really able to have a description around it. Oh, you're just tired. You're just forgetful. And so I came up with the term postnatal depletion to talk about all the more mild to moderate um, part of that, of that neuroinflammation uh, you know, where, where mothers may have some symptoms of anxiety or depression, but don't really tick the boxes for those conditions. Um, and and I, I think a lot of the supportive treatments are um, not the medical treatments, but maybe just some of the supportive treatments that are quite similar. And so there's a lot of overlap. And so, yeah, and, and that term really, uh, I think, resonates with a lot of mothers and a lot of people. And I, and I think and we may be calling it something different in the future. I don't know, but it's it's certainly, um, I think, something to important just for mothers to recognise that it's, you know, it's not like you have depression or not or anxiety or not. It, it, it's it just greys or colours of uh, dysfunction and, and the struggle that can come out of that. Right. Yeah, so I guess it's putting a name to something rather than being like, like you said, uh, you're just tired or that sort of thing. Yeah. Yeah. Could you give us some examples of some of the factors that can lead to this sort of depletion? Uh, for sure, and it, it, it's every mother knows these probably uh, too well. So, um, essentially, we're having children later um, than previous generations, and um, I don't know what it is in New Zealand, but in, in Australia, the average age for a mother having their first child is thirty point nine, mm-hmm. and so there's already some pre-depletion um, and adrenal stress, I suppose, that's gone on before. Um, a woman decide, deciding to start her uh, parental journey and then the demands of sometimes conception. So um, some, uh, especially if a mother's had assisted fertility, those kind of things that can really take it out of her. And then obviously making, growing a baby, all the huge changes that, are, that is occurring to a mother's brain and her body during uh, the pregnancy is massive. Uh, and the thing that coordinates that is the placenta. The placenta produces all these hormones that help orchestrate these changes. And the critical thing is what happens in the postpartum. So obviously when the baby's born, the placenta's delivered, you lose that source of um, hormones. And and 
a mother's hormones need to come back online. And this, this can take sometimes six weeks, 12 weeks, and that's given it a good supportive environment. Mm. Um, now, the average mother loses 700 hours of sleep in the first year. It's on a bell-shaped curve. The average adult needs about 3,000 hours in a year. So just to kind of give it a bit of context, that's a pretty big chunk. Mm. And and you don't get to choose those hours that you lose either. They get, they get chosen for you. And and so that interrupted sleep uh, is is critical. And so you, you have all these physical demands of the pregnancy. Then that's combined with, uh, I suppose, the demands of being a parent of a, a child who's very young, the recovery from the pregnancy, uh, and, and, and then the sleep deprivation. And mm. there's a lot there to, for a mother to kind of balance. And what we've done in our society is really not supported mothers in that process. We've gone away from a lot of cultural wisdom in terms of you know, the fourth trimester, you know, all this deep support that mothers would have normally had. And you know, I don't think those things were there in ancient cultures because they were necessarily being nice to mothers. I think they were understanding there was a biological need uh, uh, and m- mothers would really suffer if they weren't supported in that early period. Now, we don't do that by default in our society. And so it's really uh, can be rolling the dice sometimes. Or, or maybe, I mean, an analogy I sometimes use is all that postpartum support is like wearing a seatbelt in your car. I mean, it's just something that you do as a protection. Um, and most of us drive around with our seatbelt on because if something happens, we'll, we'll, we're protected. Uh, not having postpartum support is a, l- a little bit like driving your car and not wearing your seatbelt. You might be fine, but if things go wrong, you're going to um, struggle a lot more than if, than if that support in that early time was already there. So, yeah, so in a nutshell, I think that's why mothers are struggling much more than they have in previous generations. The rate of all these disorders, whether you're looking at anxiety and depression, are going up uh, steadily and much more during uh, the pandemic because social isolation um the what is in the world in terms of is this pandemic going to last forever and and am i going to be able to easily see my friends and family uh yeah and so and so it's interesting that uh the the rates of a lot of these known disorders are going up quite significantly uh as a consequence of the pandemic um, and yeah, and so there are many factors. There's a biological, there's a social, uh, emotional uh, aspects to, to that. Uh, but it, it, it's, it's a struggle even when things are going well. And if a mother isn't supported, isn't aware of this journey that she's going on, uh, it, can, it can get very tricky and challenging very quickly, unfortunately. And this is why we do the work that we do, Emmeline. Mm. And, yeah, so you've mentioned kind of, social factors, the predisposing physical factors. I'm curious about environmental factors. Like you kind of mentioned the pandemic, but are there other sort of environmental factors that people don't really take into consideration? Oh, for sure. And and I think a big part of it is setting up the postpartum sanctuary uh, and this idea of, and, and I was very much like this with my own kids, just going, oh, we're not going to be these parents that stay at home and are slaves to our 
little ones, you know, we're going to take our baby with us. It's, it's going to be part of our already busy, maxed out life. And, um, yeah, I learned the hard way. That's not uh, manageable a lot of the time. And so we've kind of don't support that baby bubble in the early period. So that's part of the environmental uh, uh part of it and, and there's not even an expectation that a mother would stay home for three months and support would just be sort of turning up for her and she wouldn't have to cook or clean or do all those other duties that she was uh sort of doing previously even just for uh, a short period just to be have those environmental demands lessened and i think that's huge this expectation to go back to work and there's almost a bit of a badge of honor I went back to work after two weeks after my baby. What about you? Uh, as if that was something to be uh, aimed for, um, as opposed to, oh, that was a bit risky. Were you okay? Uh, did, uh, no, we, we could have a very different conversation around uh, that if we, if we understood the need to create that sanctuary and that support the baby bubble. And, and those things really help mother's hormones come back online. Um, and, you know, there may be some other environmental factors that are more invisible, such um, as environmental toxins and plastics and things that may interfere with um, how some of the estrogen and progesterone receptors work. But that's, you know, it's uh, very hard to study those things. But uh, I think we'll be hearing more and more about this uh, in the next 10 years in terms of you know, what's in our food and what's in our water and, and um even maybe the ch- change of gut bacteria um, is, is being shown to contribute to autoimmune disease in females, for example. And so, um, we know, we may be understanding much more about the exact mechanisms of this. And they're just associations at the moment. But, um, yeah, so the environment, it's a big one. And, and, and if we can really sub- give us a mother an environment that's very supportive, uh, that allows that does have deep support, uh, deep rest, and she's not burdened with having to think about the the thousand and one things that um, she may have been thinking about during the pregnancy or or before she became a mother. Mm. Now, is this sort of, um, this postnatal depletion, is this exclusive to Western societies? Uh, no, and, and this was a really interesting part of my journey going, you know, uh, I was asking the same question in the early days going, is, is this a new phenomenon? Is this something that is described in traditional healing texts? And I did a lot of research into postpartum practices of, of cultures and and looking at India and looking at China, I got some incredible insights because they describe all these conditions, they describe anxiety and depression, they describe depletion and fatigue and uh, obsessive compulsive disorder. They use very different descriptions, obviously, uh, but they knew that the, there was a potential for these things to happen. And so this is why any traditional culture you, that you look at, they have very elaborate customs and even stories and legends and superstitions sometimes that really try to... Uh, keep a mother held essentially so she doesn't go into that um, uh, area of neuroinflammation. And in traditional Chinese medicine, they don't call it neuroinflammation. They may call it a 
yin deficiency with um, uh, and bud deficiency and uh, no, explain energy or you know it, it has a different language but it's it's describing the same thing um, and Ayurvedic medicine also has very specific language around that and so for me that was an insight going no this is potential that's always been there it's part of our um, uh, biology I think that um, to to have the potential for exhaustion and anxiety postpartum but the ancients worked out these ways to make sure they didn't happen too often. Uh, whereas in the 21st century in Western culture, we're just not really enrolled, we're not aware of the, the biological aspects and the um, potential for these things. And and we almost have a, you know, what was interesting about when I was on my book tour in, in, in the United States, the the word postpartum means almost depression over there. Um, I'd have people saying, oh, no, my, my cousin had postpartum. Yeah, yeah, and it was pretty bad. And I'm just like, postpartum what? <laughs> yeah. uh, and and, and it, it almost, over there, it almost felt like it was a random bolt of lightning that could strike any mother down at any time uh, as opposed to an understanding that, okay, in, in a supportive environment, it's less likely to happen. And, if we can really take care of her nutrients and hormones, it's less likely to happen. Yeah, it, yeah. It, it's it's a very big top, topic of conversation, and I think we're just really starting to grapple with this as a society, um, uh, rather than just you know, just trying to wing it. And, and in terms of the um, that postpartum journey, yeah. See, one thing I really try to do on this podcast is to look at things cross-culturally. So you mentioned China and India before. I'd love for you to share what um, postnatal support looks like in these, you know, non-Western countries. Yeah, so in China, they have this idea of setting the moon, so one lunar cycle. Um, and a mother in traditional Chinese culture is not allowed to leave the house um, she's not allowed to prepare food. I mean, she's allowed to go to the toilet and, and feed the baby. She's not even allowed to shower in, in, in mm-hmm. very traditional places. And, which, and, and that almost would seem oppressive to um, uh, most of us in, in Western culture. And I've even heard stories that if a, a mother with a newborn that's you know, less than a month old is found outside the house, the mothers in her community will get their brooms, but they don't actually want to touch her and just kind of gently guide her back into her home. I mean, that's um, that almost seems outrageous, but it, it's not outrageous in uh, that traditional Chinese uh, medical view viewpoint of of how to support mothers mm. in India. Um, uh, again, she, she is given a different. Uh, title for a short period and uh, just to really honor the fact that she's not her maiden self or um, pregnant self uh, she's a, a new mother and then and she is given massages every day for 11 days uh, with oils you know she's brought f- food to her uh, and there's a real emphasis on a healing quiet environment with specific foods to help with her recovery and people are just turning up 
Um, she doesn't ha- she doesn't have to organise a food roster or ask people to help. It's just I, know, I can imagine help would that seems to be part of the cultural expectation and very different to what most of us have experienced in the West where we're often away from our, um, our direct family in terms of brothers, sisters and parents. You know, We, we uh, may not be that connected with the community that we're living in in terms of that level of support and we just decide to do it all our own um, and, 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 and just hope for the best and that's uh, it's not a great strategy when you understand the challenges that a that a, um, a mother has in that first year postpartum. Yeah, um, and I love you. You covered a lot of other cultures as well in your book. That it was really interesting to see so many different um, methods of support in other cultures. And having heard about some of this postnatal support um, long before I even had children like even as far back as a teenager, Mm. it was always um, accompanied by older generations' remarks that all this is unnecessary, you know, oh, I didn't need all that nonsense, I had no help and did everything myself. And they even kind of view it as lazy or weak on the mother's part. You know, I've heard this similar sentiment numerous times over the years and from numerous people. So on one hand, we have a lot of undoing of this mindset to unpack since it has Mm. been ingrained on us like our entire lives. And on the other hand, it makes it harder for mothers to advocate for themselves when the generation who should be offering this support views them as, you know, weak or lazy for requesting it. So, oh, you know, what... 100%. And, and so there's been a fracturing in between generations. And so there's intergenerational trauma underlying that. Uh, mm. And I don't know if you talk much to your listeners about this idea of the mother wound, but this this is very much the heart of what Bethany Webster talks about when she's talking about the mother wound. It's an intergenerational transference of this sentiment. Um, I wasn't supported. Why should you be supported? Mm. And it's not even conscious. And and so, and it can come directly from your own mother or mother-in-law, but it can can come from every aspect of culture, including shopkeepers and well-meaning uh, nurses mm. at the hospital and and almost anyone that you could meet and then on, on our TV shows and movies and that sort of that cultural aspect um, now we've got a quite a bizarre way of representing new mothers and um, and it's done much more in a hu- humoristic way rather than a, in a real way and and, and there's definitely uh, you know, most of us, by the time we're seven, we've already soaked up the the vibe of our culture of what a mother is, what a father is, what what should be happening around parenting. Um, and then we're, you know, we often are trying to un- uh, unpick a lot of this and un- understand why it is that mothers are not inherently supported. That was a big part of my work. You know, how do we arrive in the 21st century and we don't even understand that? Mothers are primary and need this sort of support. And hence, once I realised there wasn't much in the medical literature, diving deep into um, anthropology and, and realising that all these cultures had similar themes and these cultures never had anything to do with each other over time. Um, so that was a bit of a epiphany for me, just going, okay, there's, this is not religion or superstition. This is people understanding biological uh, importance. And yeah, and then so my that was a, a huge 
a motivation for me to, to at least look at what medical literature was out there, try to combine some of these things from traditional cultures and what does that look like in the 21st century because we can't go back to living in extended families and and communities that don't ever travel away from the village and, and yeah. um, you know, you're kind of you know, stuck in these small communities. No, well, we live very differently. And so what does it look like in the 21st century? And I think this is what we're all trying to reinvent in some ways is a, a culture that's more supportive and understanding of mothers, but it's, it's going to take time. Yeah. Do you have any advice for parents who are currently in the thick of this right now of how, how to cope with, I don't know, I guess people around them who aren't supportive and trying to get that support? Well, just, I mean, it always starts with acknowledgement. So you have to mm-hmm. just acknowledge that um, things are maybe not the way that you would have liked or, or, or what, what would have set it up had you had, more input into it uh and you know my advice really is, is if you can understand some of these key aspects uh and it, it makes it a lot easier for people to advocate for mothers and then for the mothers to advocate for themselves and at its core uh what we're really looking at is a mother's nervous system which has been hugely changed and upgraded during the pregnancy and in the postpartum and her nervous system, I mean, anyone's nervous system really dictates your hormones and your immune system and your, you know, do you like yourself and get on with your neighbor? Uh, you know, that, that all starts in the brain. Uh, those processes, even you know, even your metabolism is, is, is all those signals are sort of started in the brain. So if you're struggling with a metabolic issue like fatigue or sleep, issues because your know, circadian rhythm's out, um, if you're struggling with overwhelm, uh, you know, all these things start in the nervous system. So a huge focus of, of mine is to how do we support the nervous system and to at least be aware that that's, it's not uh, impossible uh, and it doesn't necessarily take a, a rewriting of your whole life and having to sell your house and find some community that, that's, that's going to be supportive. Now, that's not the solution. Um, the solution is to at least get more support and prioritize uh, things. But we don't prioritize self-care. We don't prioritize um, mother support. We uh, prioritize other things. Um, mm. And so I think that change of of what is important is is uh, super important. So maybe it's not. So much you know, racing to get the, the big house or the the, the top job or, or these things that may have previously been motivating us. So, um, no, those things may still be important, but may, they may not be the most important thing. Or we can just pause those things for a while whilst we're um, doing the mother care and, and support. Right, yeah. Now, so your book is The Postnatal Depletion Cure. So I'd love yeah. to focus on the cure aspect now. A section of your <laughs> book is dedicated to 100 days of repletion can you tell us you know what this is for sure and um i'll just share a a funny story but that wasn't the original title of the book um no the original title of the book that i wanted was mother morphosis so kind of just Ah. about the 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 change the one-way change of of matrescence of becoming a mother um so i thought mother morphosis was quite a good um 
title and yes. you know, the original book was actually much more medical than, than this one and the publishers were like, mm, no, we're going to make it a self-help book, but uh, we, we need a more medical name. So they came up with uh, um, this idea of the cure and uh, and you know, I was sort of discussing with them that this isn't a disease and so, <laughs> and, yeah. not, and, and, and so it doesn't need a cure necessarily, but but the idea is it needs um, a resetting. And so the 100 mm. days of repletion is, is a resetting of how the nervous system works. And so you know, I've just worked out a, a flow chart almost of, of what that sort of looks like. And I'm always refining it as, as new research and, um, you know, uh, and my clinical experience expands. Uh, but I sort of have a, uh, a flow chart that starts with the key micronutrients. So these are kind of the Lego building blocks that the, the body sort of has. And, um, uh, and then we, and, and the most important one in that is iron. Iron deficiency is, it's so much harder for mothers to recover when their iron's very low. And it's, it's a very common issue to have. And, and, uh, even before, pregnancy but it's very common during pregnancy in the, in the postpartum so that's kind of the number one mineral nutrient that we support zinc can sometimes be really important magnesium can sometimes be really important you now we can do testing we can do just short-term supplements and all these things are all generally very safe um and again all these things help how the nervous system functions now, iron is very important for balancing brain biochemistry zinc is very important for helping stabilize the GABA system, which is the main reason why mothers experience anxiety. Um, and magnesium is just is just a super important mineral for muscle relaxation is one of its primary things. It, do, it does many things. And if we can get some stabilization of micronutrients, then we can look at the macronutrients, which is kind of the bigger building blocks. And the number one is really around um, uh, DHA, which is a omega-3 that is found in fish. Uh, fish don't make this. They just eat things that eat algae. Algae are the original factories of this long-chained omega-3. So you can be you can be a vegan or a vegetarian and still take the algae oil to help refeed your brain, essentially, because the baby needs a lot of DHA to make its own brain, uh, and the placenta set up to make sure the baby gets what it needs for most of these things, including. Uh, that uh, DHA fish oil. So that's a very important part of the recovery, I think, is just getting enough of those things on board. And from there, if we have reasonable stability on, on both of those areas, we can start really looking into organ function and uh, hormones. And the main organs that we look at supporting uh, for mothers, uh, the brain, obviously, we've talked about that, and sometimes liver, sometimes the digestive tract, depending on what's going on. Uh, but they might have a lot of mothers develop digestive issues during pregnancy or in the postpartum, um, or their digestive issues have gotten worse as a as a, a byproduct of you know, um, the postpartum. Uh, and then you know, we really start looking at hormones. And so, you know, we don't give hormones, obviously, because a lot of mothers are breastfeeding or um, and giving hormones may help that doesn't help fix things. So we do a lot of things that will do uh, that will help hormones, but will also help with the fixing. And so 
Um, I'm a huge uh, fan of micro naps and yoga nidra, which are which are things that mothers can just do at home. Um, that can be very supportive to the nervous system, and you can actually, you know, there's some research showing for yoga nidra, for example, you can get some um, deep sleep type brainwave patterns in a 30 minute practice of just lying down and just doing a guided meditation, and you're not going to sleep. Um, you know, that mm. is gold for a mother that's sleep deprived and at the end of her tether. Yeah. So there, uh, and things like acupuncture can be very useful, herbs can be very useful, and essentially things that help train the nervous system to do stress off, you know, stress on, stress off, stress on. And uh, because th- that's what we tend to do quite well with, we don't do well. Uh, with stress on, stress on, stress on as the 24-7, we really need to activate the relaxation response or that stress off. And uh, that can be very challenging for a mother who's tired, not sleeping well, who's maybe looking after more than one child and is feeling totally overwhelmed and maxed out. Um, How is she going to be able to access that relaxation response? And so uh, a big part of what I do in the clinic is really try to set up things at home, things outside the home that will sort of help with that. And it doesn't have to be elaborate. It just needs to be something. Um, And then the body can uh, start the process of recalibration. It's very hard to do that if there isn't any of that relaxation going on. And then what's meant to be happening when a mother's asleep, which is a huge part of that nervous system restoration, uh, isn't really happening to the extent that it uh, could be. So... Uh, and and you know, and and once we've got stability on those things, yeah, then then we can start looking at things like healthy home, healthy family, healthy children, uh, healthy communities, those kind of things. Um, and a lot of mothers uh, experience a lot of angst and pain because they they're so tired that they're not really able to think clearly or, or feel that they can dedicate time to the healthy family, healthy home uh, aspect of motherhood. So you know, we do cover those things. Um, at the clinic, but we really have to start with the biology and just get some stability on uh, how the nervous system is working. It's interesting. I, I came, I, w- I went to a, a conference in France in May, and this was the uh, every two to four years they have a, a world symposium on the parental brains, a mother's brains, father's brains, 100 neuroscientists there. And one of the topics that they were really talking a lot about was maternal resilience um, now resilience is not a word that i prior to that really thought of as a medical word it's much more um, maybe a social word perhaps and hmm. um, and they were talking about resilience from a biological point of view uh, from an emotional point of view from a psychological point of view and how some of the people were describing resilience was okay you've had about one bad night's sleep. How quickly can you recalibrate back to a zero point? You have a emotional stressor or you're, um, how quickly can you kind of bounce back as it were? And, and that was quite an insight for me going, yeah, resilience is, is super important. And this is often what mothers are struggling with. They, they feel they have no resilience. They just have one bad night's sleep and they're just, they can be feeling wrecked for days. They have, you know, an argument with their neighbour and that can affect them for, for days afterwards or, or whatever. Whereas new to those types of negative social interactions, 
not pleasant, but we kind of get over it pretty quickly. Um, uh, for mothers, you know, these things can just linger around a lot more. Uh, and then that contributes to more dysfunction. Uh, and, and so it can be uh, a, a vicious cycle for some for some mothers that if they're really exhausted and they're just, they've got a high startle response, um, it's going to be even harder to access that relaxation response, which their body so desperately needs to, mm. um, you know, just to get them back to where they'd like to be. Yeah. Now, is, is there a significance of that 100 days, I guess that fourth trimester of trying to get this sort of support in in those 100 days? Um. Well, I, I've sort of borrowed the idea of the fourth trimester, which is about a hundred days. But what I I talk about isn't necessarily traditional. Um, mm. it, it brings a lot of elements of the traditional in there, but I, I felt it wouldn't be right if I was just talking about the fourth trimester. Was for me that that really does uh, bring in a lot of those traditional uh, ideas. So the hundred days is, is very kind of similar. It's a bit more. Of, numeric i suppose but just just gives a different perspective on that but there seems to be something around that six to twelve weeks is a really uh critical time for recalibration and if it doesn't go well in that first three months um it can be so much harder thereafter for uh, a mother to get herself back on on course as it were Uh, we all know that you know, things happen in the first year. Um, if children can start teething, can can start sleeping terribly at, at that sort of five to six months. And so if you're already sleep deprived and exhausted and then that happens, you've got no you've got you don't have that resilience. Um yeah. so yeah, so that hundred days for me research might show that it's slightly different, but it seems to be what old cultures have found. It seems to be what I've found in terms of the sweet spot of uh, uh, needing that deep support. So we, we have a bit of a saying in our clinic in terms of postpartum care, uh, deep rest one month, deep support uh, 100 days, priority on sleep one year. Mm. And, <laughs> yeah, it, it's – I sometimes even get mothers to kind of <laughs> not laminate it, but just put it up on their fridge so everyone in the family is kind of thinking about that. Oh, I'm eight months postpartum, I'm not out of the woods yet because it's very easy to let your guard down when things are going well. But mothers are still yeah. in this neuroplastic state for that first year. Um, mm. and neuroplastic is this idea that the brain can change, can mold itself quite quickly. And so positive of that is, is if you do some relaxation response some nervous system therapies micronaps yoga nidra whatever it is that you're doing you can get the benefits quite quickly much more than you could outside the first year postpartum uh, but on the negative side in that neuroplastic state uh, a couple of nights bad sleep is going to have a much negative bigger negative effect than if you're outside that first year and you had a couple of nights bad sleep just, just to yeah, so the neuroplasticity is a positive, but also um, a not a positive thing in terms of uh, context. Mm. It's a time of time of vulnerability, I suppose, is what I'm trying to really say with that priority on sleep for the first year. Yeah, um, one of your um, points in your uh, 100 days of repletion was don't entertain visitors, and 
having had two children myself, my own experiences, yeah. that point is just so crucial. So I'd love for you to really dig into this one because it's so common in our culture that friends and relatives want to see the baby straight away and don't seem to understand the uh, immense fatigue that their very presence induces on the mother. So, yeah, what, what are your thoughts? Oh, no, yeah, yeah, I mean, you know, and it's absolutely huge what you're describing there. And, again, this is part where the culture doesn't understand the need for support and, and people almost feel they have a right to see the baby mm. uh, and and almost be feel like they need to be entertained when they're going around to um, see the baby. And, and I've heard you know, all kinds of stories of mothers having to, you know, Get in scones and 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 it really pulls them out of that baby bubble, and yeah, and and so I do a lot of postpartum preparation for couples who are pregnant or or, or uh, getting ready for becoming parents, and yeah, in that in that hundred days, one of our little sayings is no visitors, only staff, and the <laughs> idea with that is if someone's coming over to see the baby, they're not that's not their primary uh job you know their primary job is to help you know they may be bringing food over helping clean up the kitchen oh and maybe they can have a look at the baby and that's not um their decision necessarily this is where the uh, maybe the the partner or someone else who's almost like a guardian is helping um negotiate that in terms of what what is a mother up for week to week as it were sometimes it's really good to have a sign on the door um just to really tune people um and and to have jobless you know people are turning up which job are you going to do you can (laughs) um and so at least um you know my my favorite sign that uh, i remember a couple said that they used was they had a big sign on the door saying not today um (laughs) And so when it was today, they just took the sign away. And so they were, they were saying, we're ready now to start sort of seeing people. And I, and I think it, it can be challenging because of the social throwback that might kind of occur or people, oh, mum's just staying at home by herself. She might be getting down or depressed rather than understanding that she's actually in a deep state of healing uh, and recovery. Yeah. And, and, um, and it can be very stressful for a mother for someone else to be holding the baby. Mm-hmm. And it's not it's yeah. not a con- it's not a conscious thing that that the mother's deciding. It's um, what people don't realize is the placenta gets a lot of the addiction pathways activated in terms of uh, maternal behavior, and so it's almost like trying to make the mother addicted to the baby because human babies are super helpless uh, compared to other animals and so you're taking away that drug for want of a better term away from that mother she can make her feel very anxious and very nervous um the way we can support mothers is just to leave the baby with the mum and, and 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 help with other aspects of what she needs um and then at some stage when the baby's a little bit bigger, yeah, you can get to look and play. And, and that, that's that's fine, but the timing is crucial. And you know, no one's got a right to hold the baby apart from the mother and any other primary kind of caregivers in the house. And whereas we, we feel 
or there is an expectation out there that I'm I'm the grandmother or the grandfather. You know, I've got, I can do whatever I like, and that, that's not okay. So sometimes there needs to be discussions had before the baby's here. Um, now sometimes there may need to be a bad cop in terms of. Um, and you know, I've seen lots of partners do that quite well where they're not even bringing the mother into the equation, just turning people away because they know it's not a good time. Mm. Uh, and only telling the mother weeks later, oh, no, you're, um, no, your, your sister tried to visit, but you know, I, I just said it wasn't <laughs> rather than it all kind of happening there and then and even – turning people away and the mother being aware of that can be a stress in itself. Um, But yeah, I I think it's really good to word people up beforehand, just so at least people are aware, okay, okay, it's going to be a little, not so straightforward just to turn up and and be entertained. And I think it's biologically really important that a a mother stays in that baby bubble. They've they've done research around oxytocin and prolactin um, and that, essentially what is what the baby bubble is and any stressor can pull a mother out of that baby bubble. Um, uh, and, and so we have to sort of set things up to minimise a mother's um, exposure to stress. I mean, that, that's as, as simple as it, it gets. And so no visitors. That's, that's, that for me is a pretty black and white one. Uh, yeah. I'm like, I'm here nodding away to everything you're saying. Um, Now, with everything we've covered so far, I'd love to hear what you have to say about the masculinization of motherhood. Yeah, so I'm a bit outspoken on this topic. Um, (laughs) A lot of mothers are almost a little bit shocked to hear this, but I think they at some level really uh, understand this. And what I have seen is that there has been such a huge masculinization of motherhood, especially in Australia, um, uh, especially compared to a lot of other countries where mothers are expected to just do it all on their own, don't complain, stay looking young and beautiful, and and this idea of the super mum who can do everything without help and support. This is a very new uh, avatar that we have in our world, and it's not something we should be sort of striving for. Now, I'm not saying masculine principles are bad by any means. I mean, every human has aspects of the masculine and feminine in them. Um, but motherhood is a time that's really important to be much more feminine in terms of how we turn up for that and, and the support and, um, and bring, and yeah. And, and I'll give you some sort of examples of, of mm-hmm. what I mean by that. So, and I've travelled to many countries and had a look at how they, what the parenting sort of styles there. If you go to the United States, if you go to most countries in Europe, if you can afford a nanny, you would get an, a nanny to live in or, or um, get someone to do housework for as many hours or, per day as you can afford. And no one would bat an eye. They would go, of course, you know, you'd do that. Uh, in Australia, if no, I've, I've heard so many mothers say, no, they have a house cleaner coming in. They want to get a doula for four weeks for, to come live in and sort of help. They want to get an au pair or, um, and there's so much negative feedback from people around them going, why would you need that? Is, is mm. there something wrong with you? Or um, it's somehow a sign of failure. And, and so the, that masculine principle is, is, 
I can do it all by myself. Um, and if it's not working, I just try harder. Um, that may be useful for some uh, times of our life and some emergencies, but it's not useful for motherhood. It's, um, yeah. And we're all socially conditioned with some of these ideas of the super mom and how great is, oh, no, isn't she an amazing mom? She's got four kids. She's just doing everything. And, um, you know, it, it's, 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 a, it's a false um, thing that, to be aiming for. Uh, and I think we'll get very negatively affected when we collectively think that that is what we should be aiming for because it's not real. It's not uh, – and it, it can really undo a lot of mothers because they feel that they don't meet up to those expectations and guess what? They just blame themselves as opposed to maybe more correctly blaming our society for sort of set, setting her up for failure. And so – this masculinization yeah. of motherhood is, is just reflecting that. And um, I'm just, rather than just being judgmental, I'm just trying to be quite matter-of-fact about it. This is what we're doing. We, it, It's not, uh, and it's increasing struggle and it's increasing social isolation. It's increasing um, the burden that, that a mother has um, in her journey. Um, and, and, a mother can really enjoy motherhood or she can really endure it depending on um, how she is supported or not supported. Yes. And I guess, yeah, could you talk to us about the difference between matrilineal and patriarchal value systems with regards to this masculinization? Yeah. So I had a really interesting insight um, many, many years ago studying uh, primates. Just going, well, look, how do primates um, uh, raise their young? What sort of structures do they have in their sort of society? But there's, there's a lot of debate about what the ideal human society should be. Mm. And when you look at our closest relatives, which are the bonobos, um, they're related to chimps. Um, about two million years ago, the river in the Congo divided bonobos on the north and chimps to the south. Chimps had to deal with gorillas and other um, predators and things, and so they ended up getting a very patriarchal society where the male chimp is the leader of the clan and it's, it is a, um, and they had that typical king. Um, and the other younger male tried to dethrone the king, and then the king chimp has, you know, or his females he's trying to look after and that that's sort of what the patriarchal system sort of looks like now north of that river you've got bonobos who don't have any of those um uh, predatory challenges and dealing with gorillas and other things to, in, in competition and the males aren't larger than the females they have a matriarchal and matrilineal culture so the matriarchal is where the the queen rules the, uh, the the tribe, and the tribes are much bigger in bonobos than there are in chimps. And matrilineal is who is your mother is, is very important. And in chimps, there is no patrilineal because you know you've just got the king chimp, and who who your dad is doesn't really matter because it's a very different way things are sort of set up. Whereas matrilineal is about who who is your mother, and that and that equates to your worth um, in that society. So. Yeah, I, I did a post recently sort of talking about the, the differences between 
matrilineal and patriarchal. And, and one of the big um, differences is that matrilineal is much more around we, the collective, and pat- patriarchal is much more around the me, you know, the I. Um, and these value systems uh, are both important. It's not like we should be doing solely one and not the other, but we really have to understand that our environment's really critical in terms of how we could and should be setting up our human societies. And there is no ideal human society, uh, but the patriarchy comes out of um, uh, a sense of uh, scarcity where there isn't enough things to go around. So you have to, might makes right and you have to have a hierarchy to protect what is yours. Uh, whereas you could set up societies where, where there's much more abundance, uh, much more egalitarianism rather than sort of hi- hierarchical system, and there's enough to go around. And so, um, and that's, and you can be much more in a collective uh, where the we is more important than the me. And, and we do struggle with that in our society. We have, uh, I think the United States is probably the classic country that is so me orientated um and they're arguing about their rights to own guns that's a very me thing whereas um you go to a place like japan no one's allowed to have guns um because they're much more thinking about the we <laughs> uh, uh, and, and that that can stretch to many you know, almost anything that you think about within that society uh, our individual rights more important than collective rights and i think climate change is really asking some bigger questions around um, you know, maybe we have to forego some me things that I can just drive my gas guzzling car wherever I want um, uh, and be looking much more at what's better for the collective. And maybe I'm not driving that car. Maybe I'm getting an electric car. Maybe I'm using public transport. Maybe I'm just working from home. You know, it's just, it's just a, an example. But, yeah, it, it, you can uh, spin that out to almost anything that we sort of do. Yeah, I like the um, how you've broadened that to not just be specific to like a small unit, but climate change and laws that affect a lot of people, how that those patriarchal value systems can influence things on such a broad perspective as well. I, I saw the post that you were referring to, and I think you, you mentioned how how these patriarchal value systems have their place when it's you know, regarding being in survival situations like hunting or, Mm. you know, rolling over nature and that sort of thing. But in terms of, you know, the long-term vision and working with nature and caring for others, you're wanting that more egalitarian approach. Have I got that right? Oh, yeah, 100%. And so part of the patriarchal system is that you need expansion Um, because within within that patriarchal system, uh, you need more resources from the outside to keep that system running. And you have a look at any expansionistic uh, empire that's ever been, they've just ended up burning out, you know, whether you're in the Romans or um, uh, you know, just any any uh, uh, old culture, you can go back in history and just have a look at it. You just can't keep expanding. And so we, yeah. we, we have an expansionistic sort of society that needs to take more than what it can uh, replace and and if you have a look at Aboriginal culture for example in Australia they very much based on an idea of continuism 
where whatever you do and you, the footprint that you leave has to not be more than before you came. And, and, and you have to set things up in a way for the next generation that they can then be able to do the same for the next generation, the next generation, this idea of what you do affects the next seven generations. And, and so we're in this expansionistic, capitalistic patriarchy needing to bring much more uh, of this continuism type uh, way of uh, operating our society. And we, we have enough resources, just our resources aren't well managed. And this is more the issue that we feel um, scarcity and needing to uh, accumulate and own things and, and um, uh, you know, that sort of physical wealth is, is a goal in, 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 in our society at the moment. It's not family well-being or uh, experiences, accumulating experiences that's, that's important. It's, it's much more assets. Um, that seems to be the North Star for many people, and that that can't go on forever. And I think climate change is really just showing us, yeah, we're, you're tipping the balance uh, on <laughs> every uh, aspect of nature that we can measure, and um, yeah, we're going to have to be dealing with those consequences uh, as time goes on. Mm. And I guess. In regards to what we've already said, we're already dealing with those consequences over the past few generations in terms of from the small scale of just working with the mother to help the baby yeah. to how that affects things on like such a much more broader scale. Yeah, it, it, it really reflects in, in the way we, uh, um, uh, I mean, how our society operates. We don't honour mothers. We don't honour the great mother in terms of the planet of Earth. And we just... Hmm quite blindly just hope everything's going to be okay. Um, whereas if you look at those sort of maternal principles or matrilineal principles, it's much more about taking responsibility and being inclusive and um, uh, understanding that there just needs to be a, a balance. It's not something that we can uh, forget about and just you know, think science is going to work it out or, or Elon Musk's idea of we'll just go to Mars once we screw up this planet. No, I mean, it, it's just crazy, really. Um, yeah. And we have the resources we have, but um, I think we have enough understanding. Uh, and I think the best people to be managing a lot of this are the most invested people. The most invested people are mothers. You know, they've got more to lose than anyone else, really. Um, and, uh, and to be trying to collectively move away from this uh, me, me, me um, narrative that's uh, so predominant out there. Yeah. And I, I love I love that you are being outspoken on this. I think your perspective as a male, as a father, as a doctor, uh, yeah, I think it, it's quite significant as opposed to, oh, it's just another mother trying to stop the patriarchy or something like that. Yeah, no, um, yeah, my my agenda is not a a feminist one. It's much more a humanistic one. And yeah, um, I've, I've often been asked, you know, why as a man am I talking about these sort of things? And um, um my answer to that is usually goes something like this: that you know, I just felt like a reporter in a war zone. I was seeing this kind of devastation that mothers were experiencing and lack of support and just the the depths of despair that can 
occur and, and I was just witnessing this, not only in my own family, but with friends and clients and um, and I had to had to talk about it. It's, and so the, that's where the reporter on a war zone <laughs> analogy sort of came from because that's exactly what it felt like. You know, I wasn't, uh, no, I, I wasn't experiencing personally postnatal depletion, but I was seeing it and feeling the effects of that and um, uh, firsthand. So, and couldn't turn a blind eye either. Just once I knew it was like, okay, I've got to start really changing how I'm turning up here and and and, um, uh, and what's the priority for me. Yeah. Well. Thank, yeah, thank you for acknowledging that. Um, can you can you tell us about your mother care project? Yes. Yeah, so part of that, um, so I've been working just one on one with clients for many years, and part of me wanting to really help support more mothers than I currently can, and, and that one to one is to actually sort of go online. And so I'm in the process of launching uh, the Mother Care Project, which is essentially an online village for all things mother. Mm. And uh, there'll be sort of just more and more things uh, on that website. There's going to be lots of free content. Um, There's going to be uh, webinars and courses that uh, people can do for postpartum planning. It'll be coming out later this year. And our first offering coming out um, uh, next month, which is going to be a course called Mother Morphosis, uh, funnily enough. Uh, and we're going to be taking a cohort of mothers through a nine-month journey of recovery. So there's going to be a lot of uh, – I'm just trying to share what I do in the clinic uh, in terms of you know, looking at these nutrients, looking at um, uh, supplements, looking at uh, nervous system. Uh, and, so, and, and there's going to be a lot of educational support and then really talking about what what can you do that's safe that's going to be effective Uh, and that's you know we're i'm super excited it's the first time that i've done anything like this and i can it's the first time anyone's done anything like this from what i can see and to be able to reach more mothers and then those mothers can really maybe provide some wisdom to those mothers around them because i think that's a solution longer term it's not necessarily the medical world understanding um, postnatal neuroinflammation. I mean, that would be nice. Uh, but I think it's older mothers helping younger mothers with deep support and non-judgment. That, that reestablishing what, the way sort of things used to be in terms of that intergenerational support. Um, it's not going to happen quickly, but I, I think that's certainly my goal. And so the Mother Care Project is just, a, I suppose, a resource centre uh, online village uh, for all things mother and next year I'll be doing uh, a, a course for mother care workers for example so it's going to be a six-month course on learning about a term I've made up called matriatrics you know we've got geriatrics for the elderly we've got pediatrics for kids you know we, there's enough sense and reason that we should be having a field of medicine called matriatrics um, yeah. looking at the unique landscape of what happens after you become a mother because that doesn't go away. There's significant um, changes in biology and physiology, and also changes in psychology and uh, and everything in between. And so, this is going to be a, a course for for physiotherapists, for doulas, for doctors, anyone who's kind of interested who who work with mothers um, as part of their uh, primary 
job and uh, would like to know more about the science uh, of motherhood. So that, that's um, that, you know, I'm super excited about that as well because that's really where my passion comes in about a lot of the the nuances and the neuroscience and the hormonal research that's that's um, slowly but surely sort of uh, been done. Hmm. Sorry, what was the name of it again? Was it Mother Matriatrix? Oh, Matriatrix. I mean, it's just a term I've come up with. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. But but again, a word is is very powerful. Yeah. Yeah. Um, No, I like that. And and, anyone who really thinks about it, it's like, yeah, it makes perfect sense. And there's enough research out there to to qualify that. It's not uh, as if you can, you can, honestly say oh no that that's there isn't enough research out there to warrant that or not there is it just hasn't been um uh curated in any meaningful way yet so um yeah um, i'm gonna be you know that i think you know, people can just check that out on the the mothercareproject.com uh and like i said there's just going to be a whole range of things on there and just be building on that uh, sort of slowly. So I've, I've cut down my clinical work to two days a week uh, and then the rest of the time I'm just dedicating to, um, yeah, to that and reaching more mothers and, um, yeah, I'm very, uh, yeah, very excited by that because it's it's going to really just promote this idea of mother support. Yeah, fantastic. Um, I Yeah, so I'll put links in the show notes to your Mother Care Project website and your book and your Instagram page. Is there anywhere else you recommend people going to find out more about what we've talked about today? Um, I mean, just following me on Instagram and just checking out the Mother Care Project website. Um, I'll be posting more resources and, and other, um, you know, if anyone's interested in, in these things, that's definitely would be the, the starting point. Um I could talk for hours about all the resources and books and organisations mm-hmm. people could look at, but um, you know, that'll, that'll be coming out on the website. Great. Well, Oscar, this has been such an important conversation to have, and I'm so grateful that you took the time to talk to me today. Thank you very much. Oh, no, thanks, Emily. I've really enjoyed today. I think, yeah, it's, uh, I'm, I'm always honoured to be talking to your um, mothers that you're helping sort of support and... Yeah, like, like I said, I, th- I think that's the solution to most of the, the challenges that we're seeing in our society is, is mothers mm. having support from um, other mothers who are really interested in, in caring about their challenges. Yeah. Uh, and so now my final question for you to end on is if the entire world's knowledge was lost and you could only leave one sentence for future generations, what would it be? Yeah, that's a, that's a tough one. Um, it would have to be something like this. Um, work with your biology, not against it. Oh, that was um, so nice and concise. Yeah. Well, and, and essentially that's, that's uh, a lot of my work in a nutshell. We can't pretend that we're anything other than what we are. We certainly try to, and uh, uh, but we're, we're biological systems with – complex emotions and um, uh, ever-changing, you know, psychology. Um, and we have to embrace that. We can't just pretend like we don't have menstrual cycles or emotions or that sleep's 
not that important um, or we can just eat whatever food and we'll be fine. Uh, um, yeah, so we have to, and, but when you work with your biology, great things can happen. If you enjoyed this episode, you can join the discussions on our Facebook and Instagram pages. To hear more, subscribe for free on the podcast app on your smartphone. We are available on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Stitcher, Spotify, and all of your favorite podcast platforms. If you would like to offer feedback or suggest a guest, email us at untaming.podcast at gmail.com.